You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. I'm your host, Mark Brisley, and I'm once again joined by David Fingold, Lead Portfolio Manager here at Dynamic, where he is managing over $13 billion in assets across mutual funds and ETFs that span global and U.S. strategies, and a recent rounding out of his suite of mandates with two international offerings. David last joined us here in November of 2020, right on the heels of the U.S. election and a lot of optimism on the pandemic, economic, and market fronts. And with tongue firmly planted in cheek, that seems like an entire stimulus package ago. David, welcome back. Thank you. Let's start with the big picture then and talk about what your thoughts are on where equity markets are today. And do you see any new leadership emerging for 2021? I think it's important that we should just back up a little bit and look at what has gone on over the last uh, several years. There was an industrial recession that started at the beginning of 2018 and proceeded through 2019 and coincided with the onset of the trade war between China and the United States. And that industrial recession became a real recession at the end of February 2020. Uh, The National Bureau of Economic Research declared that at that time a recession started. And markets have been recovering since the intervention by central banks that took place in late March and April of last year. We are still in the early stages of an economic recovery. In fact, the National Bureau of Economic Research has not even announced uh, that the recession has ended. The stock markets are trading the way how they normally trade when we're coming out of recession. Uh, Cyclicals beating defensives, copper beating gold, the yield curve is steepening, interest rates are rising, small caps are beating large caps, the international markets are showing signs of life after they were uh, outperformed by the American market until the uh, low in the bear market in the month of March. So the market is acting the way that it normally acts in the early stages of an economic cycle. Very little has changed other than if you go a little bit under the hood, you'll see that the recent increases in interest rates have been more rapid. I think that the election, vaccines, the improvement in the economy have caused interest rates to rise to what are becoming more normal levels relative to the activity level in the economy. But I would say that interest rates remain perhaps about a third uh, and maybe even 50% below where they normally should be. That is, the steepness of the yield curve is now about half of what it should be or or at the most two-thirds of what it would normally be given the level of economic activity. We saw that as the yield curve steepened with the announcement of uh, further stimulus packages, uh, progress with vaccinations, that it caused some rotation within the cyclicals that were working. So, for instance, financial services had done very poorly in the low interest rate environment uh, that we saw, and interest rates, as I just mentioned, started to rapidly improve during October, November, and December and into this year. Interest rates became high enough that financials became investable again, Uh, They were something I felt I had to drop like a bad habit in January and February of last year. 
and and thank goodness we got out of the way they went down a lot and as the interest rate environment made them investable again we were able to go back we've also seen within other areas of cyclicality that a lot of the technology companies that were able to perform last year have gone and taken a break and technology is one of the cyclical industries but there's been a rotation within technology from the very resilient businesses within software and services towards semiconductors which are a, a much more cyclical place uh, with the automobile build increasing with industrial production increasing and more demand for chips that go into machine tools uh, we have seen semiconductors do better so i won't get into granular detail with each industry but i will say that if you look under the hood of what has done best since uh, september october of last year it is the most hypercyclical parts of any particular industry and they have been reacting to the higher levels of activity as lockdowns ceased taking place uh, at least severe lockdowns ceased taking place interest rates have risen and also uh, we have seen vaccinations increase yeah so that's interesting and you mentioned rotations and you know we're hearing a lot about that lately and we've seen this before uh, these periods where you see things in equity markets where the beat up names get bought leadership gets sold you're talking a little bit about that in your couple examples but is this a potential sign of things to come as we see economies open and, and the recovery become more robust it's going to really depend upon the industry there are some circumstances where there were really dramatic increases in the share prices of businesses that were truly challenged my suspicion is that if there's uh, any short interest left to cover it's possible they can go higher but i will ask the rhetorical question which is if people were decreasing their utilization of shopping malls in the past and and we saw footfall decreasing in uh, 2017 18 and 19 there's no question that we can restore the activity within shopping malls but it was in a declining trend over the long term so you know what we are trying to do is we are trying to find the businesses that are on sale because of the current circumstances that ultimately are going to reassert themselves in terms of their growth so this is the toughest challenge we face today in building a portfolio which is how much we should be exposed to the bird in hand and let's call that the business that had a disastrous second quarter last year let's say all their stores were closed or all their movie theaters were closed they're going to have a huge increase in the second quarter of this year simply because of the mathematics just that mechanically they have some business open and previously it was closed but those businesses are facing tough comparisons in the second half because they began opening up in the second half of last year and they could be facing impossible comparisons when they move through the first half of next year so what we are trying to do is trying to find the true long-term opportunity that is to try to find investments which aren't just trades things that can be uh, purchased today or perhaps should have been purchased in november and then you have to sell them before june 30th because they're going to guide to some deceleration those are the things we're not really interested in what what's important today is to find businesses 
that can do well in the second half and do well in 2022 and do well in 2023. And, and I think that's really where the challenge lies. So you asked if there's more to come for the reopening trade. The answer is it's really up to the shorts if they're forced to cover on highly disadvantaged businesses, businesses that were in long-term decline, they could get pushed higher. But if they continue their long-term decline, they're not sound investments. If you're asking, does it continue with the businesses that will benefit from reopening and have been growing in the long term, then I would say, yes, it will continue there. Uh, and I think that that amount of selectivity is really important because if we look at some of the market action, particularly in the month of November, the stocks that did the best were the most challenged business models. And I don't believe there's a lot of legs there. Now, this is not a reason to be bearish. Uh, they didn't collectively have a huge amount of market cap. And I would say that the, the long-term prospects are, are really tremendous, and, and, and that's where we are focused. Uh, you know, in the short term, if somebody wants to get excited about a movie theater chain, let them get excited. But uh, theater attendance has been falling in the long term, and I'm sure that if we reopen, it'll be up during the time period we reopen. I just don't know what's going to cause people to rush back to movie theaters when they were in a three-year secular decline before the pandemic started. Yeah, and you know, while all that's playing out, we've also got just this unprecedented amount of stimulus that's been put you know, into the market with the US. I was watching a show this morning and they were actually pondering the question, how could equity markets possibly stumble with this much liquidity? But how do you think this all plays out long term? Well, I think first of all, the sentiment that the stimulus and that the liquidity is positive for equities, I think is a correct uh, sentiment. I think though that people have to be careful though at analyzing the difference between what they hear on the news and what ends up happening in reality. In reality, a lot of money from the prior stimulus programs has gone unspent. Now that's not to say that there hasn't been a massive amount of stimulus, there has, but the headline numbers were not spent. Then there's a lot that's been announced recently. Again, we're hearing headline numbers. We do not have approved legislation in the United States. Uh, when we have approved legislation, then we have a headline number, but it's important to understand that when you look, for instance, at infrastructure, that infrastructure is under the authority of the states and not the federal government. Uh, the federal government really only has freedom to provide matching funds, and most of the states have uh, balanced budget laws or have balanced budget amendments within their state constitutions. Now, the economy is improving, so that means the states will have more tax revenue and federal matching funds will help. But the idea that there's just a tremendous amount of money that's going to flow into infrastructure in the short term really doesn't make any sense. Now, again, I'm positive on infrastructure, but I don't see this massive amount of money getting spent soon. I mean, to be blunt, a lot of what they're talking about is money that's going to take years to spend, just given some of the legal and organizational parameters around doing it. The other thing about it is that you can authorize monies, but you still need to approve projects. So for instance, we hear there's bipartisan support for infrastructure, yet apparently that didn't include a bridge to Canada and it didn't include a San Francisco subway. Apparently pipelines are not infrastructure. The first thing the president did when he got into office was cancel a pipeline. 
So we're hearing headline numbers. I'm certain government spending is rising. I don't know if it's rising as fast as everybody says. And I think that before people get concerned about the size of the stimulus, they should think about whether the money is really going to get spent. You know, we still have a very, very high savings rate. Uh, it's near record levels. One of the ways to get some final demand into the economy would be for the government to issue bonds to borrow those savings and then spend it. But, but spending money is not easy to do. You know, hearing you mention infrastructure and just thinking about President Biden's announcement last week, uh, but then thinking a little bit about your portfolios as well, you've been zero weight in places like energy, real estate, and utilities over the years. Does last week's, you know, rollout of that package change your view in, in any of the areas that might impact the infrastructure stimulus and spending? And are there any other sectors that, you know, have become unattractive for you uh, as you've watched things unfold over the course of the pandemic? Our position on utilities is relatively unchanged. The problem with owning uh, utility assets is that you're at the mercy of regulators. And uh, when you make an investment in a utility, let's say to improve the quality of the grid, uh, to improve the use of green energy, to improve storage, uh, because you need uh, uh, ways of storing power or installing peakers because uh, solar and wind do not provide power continuously. You have to then go to a regulator and to recover a return on the capital you invest, they have to increase rates. And utility regulators are, are typically elected officials or they're appointed by elected officials who want to be reelected, so they don't want to let you spend the money. So uh, you know, my take on this is I don't want to be in the position where I'm directly leading to taxpayers uh, getting charged more money. So ideally, one wants to avoid the utility. We'll get involved uh, in businesses that are making investments that are a high priority to their regulators. Uh, an example of that would be Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, a lot of people forget that they own uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which is uh, one of the largest utilities in the world. Uh, they claim to be the largest operator in the world of wind and solar. Uh, they will not install capacity unless they're guaranteed their required rate of return in the long term. And when they get their price, they're prepared to be involved. They also uh, do not pay a dividend to Berkshire Hathaway. They retain all the cash that's generated because Mr. Buffett believes that the required rate of return he is charging these utility regulators is high enough that he really wants to invest all the cash he possibly can on that basis. So it's a growth utility opportunity, so I like that. It just happens that Berkshire Hathaway Energy is a private company and part of Berkshire Hathaway. So, you know, if that helps you understand how we're looking at it, we're not against the idea of utilities. We just want to make sure that we're getting involved where we have certainty that we're going to earn the right return uh, and also that we're investing in the energy of the future. You know, the other thing that I'd point out about utilities and real estate is they tend to be very interest rate sensitive. And uh, I mentioned earlier that interest rates could increase 30 to 50% just to go to normal levels relative to where industrial production is, GDP growth, the purchasing managers indices. And history's shown us the utilities and real estate perform poorly in rising interest rate environments. So I just don't think that they're the place to be. And, and you asked about energy, and I just you know had some things to say about wind and solar, which I rather like. 
I, I will also say that I do like fossil fuels, but again, what I'd say about really anything is we always prefer the picks and shovels. So, you know, the fossil fuel uh, discussion is interesting because, you know, business was really terrible 12 months ago. I mean, uh, you know, we had a negative oil price. Uh, and for companies who supply the picks and shovels, they're coming from a business level of zero. So anything is pretty rapid growth if they're getting orders for the picks and shovels. So there are some areas there that, that excite us. I mean, we don't just you know, invest in the equipment for making solar panels, and we do, or the investment for making uh, the equipment for making wind turbines, and we do do that. We also have invested in the equipment for oil and gas production and to support oil and gas production. You know, that can include compressors. Uh, natural gas does not come out of the ground at pipeline pressure. It needs to be compressed. You know, it can include generators. We just saw in Texas that the cold snap shut down the power grid. So I suspect that most every oil well is going to need a generator or run the risk of, of shutting down in a weather event in the future. Uh, we have a company that makes heating equipment, uh, electric heating equipment that's used by utilities and chemical plants, refineries. It's used in, in oil and gas uh, midstream and upstream assets, and we just saw all those assets freeze in Texas. So I, I expect that in past weather events, there's been very high order inquiry activity and subsequently uh, order intake activity as people begin winterizing their kit. So we like the picks and shovels. And, you know, I, I think in a growing economy where the, the price of oil is already 60 bucks and we're barely driving our cars and we're barely flying around in airplanes, the oil price can be higher. I don't know how much higher, but I know that there's the demand for the picks and shovels, and we can really see this in in the performance of the pick and shovel companies. You talk about a rising rate environment as well, and of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I won't say concern, but a lot of interest on the inflation front. I thought Chairman Powell came out with some, you know, fairly uh, pointed guidance recently, uh, and it seems like they're going to look inflation in the whites of its eyes before they make any sort of uh, policy changes. But here we are sitting talking about 1.6, 1.7% on the 10-year being high. So what do you make right now of rates and inflation expectations, and how is it impacting your view on equities? Well, first of all, we always invest in businesses that have pricing power. Uh, so if there's inflation, if our companies need to take a price increase, they can. But to be blunt, if there's disinflation, if there's deflation, uh, they get to hold their prices. So uh, pricing power is great. I mean, Mr. Buffett was asked by the Financial Crisis Inquiry Committee what the most important attribute was that he looked for in a business that he invested in, and he said it was pricing power. And I agree with him uh, wholeheartedly on that. I mean, he said that he's invested in businesses where they had to hold a prayer meeting in order to raise prices, and he didn't think that that was a very pleasant experience. Uh, as you know, I've worked in operations and we were in a commodity business and uh, I had to be a price taker. And I understand exactly what that prayer meeting is like and, and I don't want to uh, be there again. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about inflation. I think that if there is inflation, good businesses with pricing power will benefit from it. As you pointed out, uh, interest rates should be higher as a result. I think that the other thing that we keep on forgetting about this is that as recently as 12 months ago, 24 months ago, we were worried about deflation. We were worried about secular stagnation. 
if if Chairman Powell says that he's going to let inflation expectations run hot, I think that makes perfect sense because he was trying to calm people down not so long ago and his predecessor not so long before that to calm them down about deflation. And I also think, and I think the Governor Kashkari has actually been very clear about this, that in prior economic expansions, the Fed tightened too early and tightened before it was possible to bring discouraged workers back into the workforce. In fact, I think the Governor Kashkari went so far as to actually um, say that uh, black and Hispanic discouraged workers uh, literally would only just be getting hired when the Fed would tighten too much. Uh, I think this current Fed really wants to bring discouraged workers back into the workforce. Uh, you can see that in the difference between the U3 unemployment rate and U6, which is the broader measure. And I think that they would like to see U6 a lot lower, and I think they'd like to see the participation rate a lot higher uh, before they choke this off. And uh, look, that's my read of it. I know that for people who are on fixed incomes, they don't want to hear that their spending power could get undermined by inflation. But I think that all of us are concerned about the long-term unemployed and that several Fed governors are talking very seriously about it, uh, as is uh, current secretary and, and, and former Fed uh, director uh, Yellen. And I would expect it to form part of the policy framework. And, and by the way, again, it's aspirational. They've been trying to get to the 2% target for a really, really long time. David, let's talk about the credit side of the equation. It's a big part of your process doing credit work on equities that you want to own. So what are you seeing today? And are credit markets behaving like you would expect? Well, credit markets are currently behaving exactly as would be expected. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're in the early stages of an economic rebound. And as a generalization, credit markets tend to improve uh, almost into the later uh, innings of the economic expansion. In fact, let's think back to uh, the cycle in the 2000s. Credit spreads were improving until late 2006. So we were more than three years into the expansion and credit spreads were still improving. And also the cycle ended two years after that. So it was two years of deterioration in credit before the cycle ended. So I feel like we're in early innings, you know, mid-game uh, at the absolute latest, and that is the read that I take off of credit. That also means that growth can be higher and should be higher because businesses and households have plenty of access to credit. And in fact, uh, recently I was looking at consumer credit statistics and the growth in consumer credit. And, uh, you know, you hear on television, in the newspaper, big numbers for consumer credit. But people forget about the base effect. They forget that there's 10 or $12 trillion worth of mortgages outstanding. And just given where the population is, there should be more like $15 trillion outstanding. So um, there's plenty of room for consumer credit and business credit to expand. From a security selection point of view, it's very straightforward. I am an investor in the equity of a company. And let's all think back to basic finance. Uh, the equity holder has to sustain the first loss. 
Uh, it's only when we get wiped out that bondholders and banks and trade creditors can lose any money. So we do credit work on all the companies we invest in. We have a perfect record of avoiding companies that have gone bankrupt. Uh, it's almost the most important part of the definition of a high-quality company. Quality is a composite of credit quality, profitability, and consistency of profitability. And quality is what we do. I can tell you that recently, uh, certainly during the month of November and, and also during the uh, month of May last year, the lowest quality companies did really well. I mean, they had been given uh, death sentences, and those death sentences have been commuted. So we're in an environment uh, you know, with really abundant credit, uh, and that's a reason to be bullish. In fact, you know, I know I've been talking, and I hear myself talking about concerns, concerns about long-term unemployment, concerns about getting stimulus passed. I, I want to make it completely clear I'm bullish. I mean, we don't see any red flags for the economy. Yeah, and because of you know that bullishness and your optimism, uh, we did recently just launch the Dynamic International Discovery Fund with you, and uh, as well uh, an ETF that's, that's going to go alongside it with our uh, Dynamic Active International ETF that you're managing alongside Peter Rosenberg. But there's been a lot of attention on uh, markets outside of North America, specifically the U.S. Where are you finding some of the good opportunities right now outside of North America? And are you tilting to more international names in your global mandates, like Global Dividend and the Global Asset Allocation Fund? Look, we just came through a uh, pretty long period of U.S. outperformance. I mean, I recall getting questions throughout 2016 through 2020, this U.S. outperformance, how long can it continue? And I remember saying to people, uh, U.S. outperformance ends when you get a, a bear market, and then the U.S. outperforms by going down less during the bear market, and then the baton is handed to international. And we think that's what happened last year. The reason why this happens is because the international markets contain more cyclical industries, you know, as an overall percentage of their market cap uh, than the U.S. markets do. They simply have more industrials, more energy, more financials, more materials. Uh, so as a result, it's just a more cyclical space in the international markets. So it's a good place to be just given what is going on in the economy. Uh, I think there are prospects for international markets uh, to outperform, at least until we get to the middle of the cycle. I think that also almost every investor I talk to has very overweighted the United States, and they're looking to get some diversification. And I think that makes sense. Nobody wants all their eggs in one basket. And you asked what we were doing in the global funds. And the answer is, well, the U.S. was working. We had strong weights in the United States. Uh, at the start of 2020, I think that the Global Dividend Fund was around 75% U.S. content. Uh, by the end of 2020, it was uh, significantly below that. I'd say that it would have been uh, uh, perhaps closer to 40-45%. So we have rotated money in the global funds towards international, but it's important to understand that uh, the U.S. is the largest stock market in the world. It's the least volatile stock market in the world. It needs to be the anchor of our uh, global equity funds, especially the ones that are low to moderate risk or moderate risk. And uh, starting an international fund uh, at this juncture, as the international markets are, are picking up the baton, is really good timing. 
you know, in, in fact, Mark, I think back on our own conversations that we wanted to time the launch of the fund uh, when we would have the wind at our back. And I think we've made that judgment in terms of when we started it. In terms of where we're finding value, it's obviously in the cyclical industries. There's a very strong uh, representation of financial services and industrials uh, in that portfolio and also consumer durables. Uh, we're getting to invest in some of the best financial institutions in the world. There, there are things you can invest in internationally that you really can't invest in in North America. Uh, private banking is a good example. I mean, this is a business that the Swiss invented. You know, the other thing is that some of the finest luxury companies in the world are in Europe. You know, and this could be in you know in things like uh, like leather and handbags. It could be in uh, fine uh, fragrance. Some of the best distillers in the world are in Europe. Again, uh, cognac, well, cognac comes from one place, and that's France, and we own a cognac producer. Some of the finest cosmetics companies in the world are international, and, and those are opening up plays, because as much as uh, some makeup is getting used for Zoom calls, a lot more makeup will get used when people go out uh, shopping or to restaurants or go back to the office. So, you know, I'm just giving you a taste of some of the things that we've invested in. Uh, one area that is emerging for us is actually commercial insurance. Uh, the commercial lines have uh, benefited uh, from uh, the claims in business interruption last year uh, and also some of the natural disasters. And when I say benefited, when you get that environment where everybody has to pay a lot of claims, everybody has to raise prices, and it's actually a lot easier in Europe, for instance, to get exposed to the commercial lines without being exposed to personal lines. Personal lines in insurance hasn't been a good space because it's hard to raise prices when nobody's driving their cars and there's very few accidents. So uh, Europe actually has, has given us access to some granularity on the part of the insurance market uh, that's improving. You know, and then there's our investments uh, you know, in Israel, where we have some of the finest technology companies in the world. And, and also, interestingly, uh, I'm back in the fertilizer business with an Israeli company. Uh, the Dead Sea is the world's longest reserve life source of potash. It is the low-cost producer of potash at the Dead Sea Works. So that's something we've had the scope to invest in. So, you know, it's exciting. It's always fun to have a, to have a new fund and, and a lot of opportunities. Uh, if you look at the portfolio, you'll see some greatest hits. Uh, some of the companies we've owned for a long time in the other global funds. And, and also some new ideas as we're building out our first uh, dedicated uh, international portfolios. Definitely the optimism. Uh, you can certainly hear it in uh, in your comments through this entire podcast. And, you know, one of my favorite sound bites from you, and I know it's a quote, has always been that, you know, you are an optimist because you've never met a rich pessimist. But here's my actual question to, to close things off today. Is there anything that's keeping you from, uh, you know, closing your eyes tightly at night right now? You know, they always say in boxing, uh, you don't see the punch that gets you. It hits you in the back of the head. So there's lots of things that I'm worried about, but they really aren't the thing we should be worried about. It's, it's very difficult to accurately predict uh, what the problem is going to be. So I don't know anybody who predicted 9-11 uh, or the first or second Gulf War or predicted COVID. 
I, I know people sometimes predict things repeatedly and then finally get them right. I mean, I, I did go to Babson College, and, and, and Roger Babson did predict the Great Depression. Uh, it was the fourth or fifth time he predicted it that he was right. Uh, so I think that's the reason why we're conservative. Uh, most of the money I manage is in low to moderate risk funds, and there's a definition for that. We're supposed to uh, stay between 6 and 12% standard deviation of returns. Uh, so we have to be conservative. We have to be willing to raise cash. We have to invest in high-quality businesses. But I think that if we put our uh, conservatism together with some optimism, then uh, I think we should continue to see encouraging uh, results uh, into the future. Uh, and look, I, I wish that I could name um, what we should be worried about. I always, you know, used to tell people that I was worried about a, a killer asteroid coming to destroy the Earth, and I actually just read in a scientific journal that uh, NASA's experimenting with nudging an asteroid because uh, they need to be prepared if something like that happens in the future. So, you know, perhaps we can take that one off the table. And who saw murder hornets coming? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> David, it is always a pleasure. Appreciate your perspective and your insights. Uh, we, we definitely love the optimism, but uh, also with that uh, dose of reality in terms of what you're looking for and, and how you're putting that across your mandate. So thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for another edition of On the Money. As always, if you would like more information about anything you heard today or anything pertaining to Dynamic Funds, please feel free to visit us at dynamic.ca. And of course, for any information beyond that, please seek the services of a qualified financial advisor. On behalf of all of us here at Dynamic, we wish you continued good health and safety. And thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. <laughs>